Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Leslie. I'm going to move up there actually today. I'm going to use some shade. (laughs) Well, this morning... start sleeping we do that again okay um yeah we we are wrapping up our beatitude series this morning and uh, i i hope as you have i have been i hope you've been challenged as well as we have um worked our way through really each one of these beatitudes one at a week uh kind of a slow pace but there really is so much here there's so much indies and uh, you know, as I looked at the, the, the passages, I just couldn't think of how we would ever do this in one week. Uh, so I hope it's been beneficial for you. This morning we close out our series, The Beatitudes and Operation of Grace, we've called them. We've called the series this because the Beatitudes are not a checklist of to-dos to get into the kingdom. But they're the blessed character of the one who has been made not nice, but new. Do you remember that comparison? Not nice, but new. New creature. These aren't eight different types of um, personalities or people, as if one was Christian is meek and some Christians are not meek, or there's one who is righteous and one who's not, or one who is poor in spirit and one who isn't. No, they're all, all the types of qualities of the same type of person. And this isn't the super Christian. This isn't just for the super Christian who's been a Christian for 30, 40 years. But every disciple of Jesus who's had an operation of grace upon them. So week after week, hit after hit, Jesus has been taking down any view that these are just about some kind of different morality for his kingdom. No, these are supernatural gospel ambitions that only come from being a a new, born-again creature. Not nice, but new. 
like um, we talked about that one week, not like a better version of a horse, but like being turned into a winged creature. Not just the fastest horse, but being turned into an entirely different winged creature for every Christian. We can't say some are meek and some are not. And some are persecuted even today. And some are not. No, all Christians, Jesus is saying, will be persecuted at some time. Uh, Paul said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, all will be persecuted. All. That's what makes this final beatitude so searching and challenging, maybe even scary and convicting. Because as I was reading through this week, the thought popped to my mind, how many of us have been persecuted for our faith? It's an essential part of being a Christian, Jesus says. Why is that? Well, remember real quick before we jump into it, remember the logical order of these Beatitudes? We finished last week with blessed are the peacemakers was last week. A peacemaker is someone who, like his brother Jesus, her brother Jesus, as sons and daughters of God, shares about the peace that's needed between God and man, the sin that separates us from God, the exclusive way back to God that only Jesus Christ brings through repentance and faith. That's the kind of message that got Jesus killed. That's the kind of message that got Paul killed, that got Stephen stoned. Peacemakers wage an active peace. And so, active persecution will come. It can come in all kinds of different forms, from personal to family to institutional. It can be a general harassment, verbal insult, verse 11 says, physical injury, being marginalized, loss of employment, which is happening some, around some places, mistreatment, even being killed for your faith. But while the persecution can come in all kinds of different forms, there's only one t reason for persecution that Jesus calls blessed. That's the important thing for us this morning. There's only one reason for persecution that Jesus calls blessed. So this morning we're going to look at the wrong type of persecution. Then we're going to look at the right type of persecution, if you, if you can even say that. The right type of persecution. And then the reward that waits those who persevere. That's what we're going to do this morning. So get ready to sit under God's word, to be changed in real time by his spirit. As you grab your outline, hope you got your Bibles there too. Let's begin with the negative, the wrong kind, because we've got to start there. Here it is. Jesus does not call persecution for being obnoxious, self-righteous, or overly political blessed. It's really important in our age for us to understand what Jesus is not saying first. Because this beatitude is probably the one, and maybe a verse in the Bible that's been misunderstood and misapplied maybe more than any. This idea of persecution. I remember a college student I mentored some oh, 15 years ago or so, and he had, a, he had a real burden, a heart to be a missionary. And he, we talked about that. We, we went back and forth with it. And, and he is one today, actually. But when he was young and a bit naive and early on, his initial heart motives were, they were like a misapplied uh, version of this verse. He had this kind of annoying, actually, bravado, macho desire and anxiousness just to be martyred as a missionary. 
That was like his heart's desire. Just to get out there so he could suffer. Just, just let me at him was his attitude. And see what they do. It was kind of a cocky arrogance that he was going to suffer. But it wasn't for righteousness, as Jesus says here. It was for some other motive. Whatever his heart motive was, uh, uh, it could have been a pride, could have been a desire to be noticed, to accomplish something great for the Lord. But it wasn't the righteousness Jesus was talking about here at that time. Now, he's matured. He's doing wonderful things for the kingdom with his wife uh, in Eastern Asia. But his story gives us an example of how important it is to realize that Jesus doesn't call all types of persecution blessed. But only those who suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's the thing this morning, if you remember anything. The most important thing Jesus says is, those who suffer for the sake of righteousness, or my name, he says. It's important because we live in a contemptuous age, don't we? An age of culture wars and political wars and online wars. And this is not what Jesus is talking about. <clears throat> as tempting as that is to enter into those and feel like those, that might be what Jesus is talking about, it's not. Now, Peter makes it really clear. Listen to Peter from 1 Peter 2. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, is, credit is it if when you sin, and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God, or a blessed thing. You know, there are all types of reasons that we can, and you probably have gotten into trouble. I have. All types of reasons. All types of reasons, even for being persecuted. An obnoxious attitude. An obnoxious attitude even about our Christian faith wouldn't be what Jesus is talking about. Just being plain difficult with others and not exercising wisdom. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Or just a holier-than-thou self-righteousness that offends people because you're a follower of God that puts people off. That's not it either. And we can have a distorted view where we think, you know, just because I tick some off, off a family member of mine and I'm right and they're wrong, and maybe you really are right, I must be suffering for my own righteousness. Or just because someone dislikes me, maybe that's what Jesus is getting at. The persecution. I'm just persecuted, a victim. It's not victimhood mentality either that's so rampant in our culture today. A lot of times Peter says, in that verse we just read, our suffering can be just for our sin. Or, or foolish choices we might make. Or just annoying personality at times when we let it just get at the best of us. And he says, what credit is that? Anybody can do that, right? Any one of us can do that. We can bring down all kinds of troubles upon our head by our unwise actions and poor decisions, but Jesus doesn't call this blessed. And we shouldn't confuse ourselves into thinking that every time someone disagrees with me, we are facing persecution. I saw a great quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson this week. He said, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I'm persecuted whenever I'm contradicted. Whenever, that happens a lot, doesn't it, in this day and age? To speak your opinion anywhere and somebody's going to contradict you. He says, don't let me fall into that vulgar mistake thinking that's persecution. It's just contradiction. 
But here's where I want to focus just for a couple minutes today. Because this is where we are right now. That's why. Not because I have a hobby horse I need to get on today. But this is where we are in our Christian life and culture. Everything's becoming political. From deodorant commercials <laughs> to toothpaste to tennis shoes, things you never thought could be political are now political. Which is not a good sign in a democracy, but that's a discussion for another context, not here. But because so much of our life is becoming political, I want to talk about for a moment the persecution for being overly political. And I want to say some challenging things to us, as gently as I can, which I hopefully normally do. I try to say hard things in a gentle way so we can actually hear them and not just close our ears. Now, politics aren't inherently bad, but we're talking about them because they are so prominent and overtaking everything, even our own lives as Christians. They're not inherently bad, and God has even wired us, I would say, to be political in a sense. We live in communities and cities, and we gather and we organize and, and put things into order, which God loves, not chaos. And you can make a bit great biblical case that pursuing Christian influence in, in government and laws is an okay thing and a good thing to do. And think about this. There, there are pre-political issues that are moral issues that have become political issues. Think sanctity of life issues that we have to speak into as Christians. We have to. In fact, to speak up about evil is part of being a peacemaker. And I'm not saying this morning, as we talk about this a bit more, to not stand for your political views and convictions and even vote them. And, and you can even, if you want to, choose to suffer for those. But just know this. When you and I suffer for our identifying with any political party, political leader, that is not the blessed persecution for righteousness. It's not what Jesus is talking about here of the mark that is to mark every Christian. It's just not. And, and we need to know and think about that, that even if we mix our Christian identity with any political identity or national identity, we're still not suffering for the righteousness Christ is talking about. As tempting as that is, and I would say even that when we do that, even with maybe even a draw towards that persecution, that, that feeling gives us that we're the kind of the underdog and the being pushed to the outside, and we can wear that sometimes as a badge of, of valor. I would say when we do that, we actually can even do damage to our greater call of gospel witness when we conflate, is the word, the two. National identity, Christianity politics and Christianity. We can do damage to the greater gospel call we have, the gospel witness. Now, in some ways, it's inevitable because you take your Christian identity with you wherever you go, right? You can't check that at the door. You never should check that at the door. Any sphere of life you walk into, we can't check that. You shouldn't. But as soon as you and I, and here's what's important, as soon as you and I give off the impression that being a Christian is as much about being a, a part of a certain political party or even our nation, I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, we ourselves are shutting and barring the doors and almost preventing 
whoever the other is from listening to our gospel message. And we put them on the same level. I'm not saying we all do that. And I'm not saying it's even uh, um, been justly done. It's been distorted maybe even in the larger narrative of the media. But the question is, which is more important? Because it's really easy to face persecution for politics today, isn't it? I mean, you, 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 it's so easy. Just tweet something. Just post something. Just talk to your neighbor over the fence about something, and persecution could come. But which is more important? I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics. or I'm not even saying not, not vote. We should. But I'm saying for what kingdom do you speak out for more? And for which are you willing to suffer? That's the question for us today. And if our political identity becomes too primary, do you know what else happens? Here's what else happens. We begin to be co-opted into believing our primary tool in the Great Commission is our political party. We're winning at all costs. And what ends up happening is we, we, we forget the other Beatitudes. And we just think in terms of persecution and winning. We forget poor in spirit, we forget meekness, we forget mercy, we forget thirsting for righteousness when we begin to engage others, even in the realm of politics. If it's just persecution, we forget all those other beatitudes when we engage on that level, which should flavor all discourse, all discussion, all contradicting of each other even. Jonathan Edwards, the old uh, 1700s preacher, said, engage one who opposes us without angry reflections or contemptuous language, and as seeking his good rather than his hurt, which that's what everybody's doing today. We want to just stomp the other side, any side, and more to deliver him from the calamity into which he's fallen than to be with him for, uh, for the injury he has brought. To be with him, to be for him, even if you're against his idea. Remember, a nice person views the other as enemies to be defeated. A new person views them as enemies to be one, to be loved. May God grant us the wisdom, because I need it, the wisdom to discern between suffering for political, suffering for being uh, obnoxious or self-righteous, and let us see what true righteousness is. May God give us that wisdom at Bethany Church. So what is it? What is that righteousness? What is it? It's not these other things. Let's talk about it in a positive light. Here's number two. It's inevitable and necessary that our persecution come from being, pretty simple, Christ-like. I want to make it as simple as I can for us. Christ-like. Like Jesus. Jesus gives us two reasons. Two reasons for this type of blessed persecution. Verse 10 says, you see there, for righteousness sake, Verse 10 says that, and, and suffering on Jesus' account is the other one. Which, they both really mean the same thing. On righteousness' sake, for Jesus' account, it's really the same thing. And it really simply means to be Christ-like. To be like Jesus. As we have received Christ's righteousness, remember that? Rather than achieved it, we'll inevitably become more like him. And we will not only then, here's the thing, will not only both attract people by our love and attract people to God, but at the same time, we will also infuriate people for this righteousness, Jesus calls it. The Christian should be the most attractive person. At the same time, there's a repellent that happens too. 
if Jesus says we're going to be persecuted. It's a both end. Uh, Christians would be both attractive and repellent in ways. And Jesus assures us of both. Take a listen to Matthew 5, 16. Our same chapter, Matthew 5. Just a few verses down now. Look at 16. He says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's something attractive about the rest of those Beatitudes, about the life and love that a Christian displays. It's, what's up with those people? It was uh, a Caesar thousands, hundreds and hundreds of years ago that said, they take care of our people uh, better than we do during, a, uh, I think, a plague that was going on. They take care of ours better than their, as, be, as good as their own. And there's that attractive love quality. Matthew 5, Jesus says, people will see our good deeds and be attracted to them and to God. But on the other hand, we're going to face persecution. Jesus said in another place, John 15, you probably heard these words, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I like the first kind of attraction. Don't you like the first part? People going, wow, look at their love. Look at that. Look how they are. Look at their good works, but not the second so much. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Those are hard words to even say in front of you. Do you see why this is such a searching beatitude? When was the last time you faced persecution? For the right reason. I'm sitting under this too today. If you feel a little tension, I'm under it too. So what is the righteousness that brings persecution? Is it just being nice and good or moral? No, no, no. It has to be more than that. It has to be more than that. People don't persecute good people, nice people. In fact, when they look at a good, nice person, here's what happens. They see a better version of themselves. And one, you know, if I just try a bit harder, maybe I can, I can be like that person too. Nice, good people don't get persecuted. Remember the, uh, well, the, with the release this summer of the, uh, I don't know if any of you watched the massive Michael Jordan documentary that came out on ESPN. It was actually fantastic. So uh, just a great time capsule as well, the 90s. And watching it, I was reminded of that, um, that, that 90s advertising slogan that came out of Michael Jordan and Nike. It was, um, if I could be like Mike. Remember that? That song, if I could be like Mike, oh, if I could be like Mike. That's the epitome. He's good. Oh, he's great. And maybe in my best efforts, I too can be good and great and be like Mike. We admire good and nice people, but they don't get persecuted for it. So it's got to be more than that. Righteousness gets persecuted, Jesus says. Righteousness. It's not because they're nice, but because we are new. We're different. And that is why different loves, a different Lord, different passion, different mission, a different message than the rest of the world. It's different. It's not just nice. It's new. It's the kingdom message. It's the Beatitudes. It's the message of the kingdom that's broken in. So I want to make this practical for us then. So let's look at, here's how we're going to do that. We're going to look at two different types of people 
and how they would be offended at our Christ-likeness. Not Mike-likeness, Christ-likeness, right? To give us practical examples. Let's look at the first one. They're underneath point number two. We're going to look at the relativist and the moralativist. So let's first look at persecution from the relativist. What's a relativist? What is that? Well, a relativist is someone who doesn't really believe in absolute morality. Or more than likely in our day and age, it's just somebody, which is more, this is more prominent, they just believe morality should be personally decided. It's all at a personal level. Nothing rises above a personal level of what is right and wrong. And so to that person, you and I, who hold to absolute truth and morality, come across as just people who are trying to impose their grandiose moral standards on them. And you know what? Nobody should tell me what to do. How dare you? And so what happens is our actual pursuit of holiness, our talk of sin, our talk in our culture of right and wrong, our submission of our lives to the Lord, all of that rubs them in the wrong way and makes the relativists just a bit uneasy when they see that in a Christian. You know, our very existence, even if we're really a nice person, can make them feel condemned as we pursue holiness and love holiness and desire to see a redeemed culture and people and towns and cities and even institutions changed. We'll just rub people the wrong way. I can't tell you how many times I have uh, received strange looks when people find out I'm a pastor. Now, when I tell this story, I want you to just think Christian here. Not just pastor, but Christian here. I was at my 10-year high school reunion some, you know, 15 years ago, something like that. Um, and, and I went to a Christian school, Christian high school, Christian elementary school, most of the way through. And so it was a bunch of about 60 people, a small, small class that went to a Christian school gathering for the 10-year reunion. And I started up a conversation with a guy um, who I wasn't really close with then, but you know, small schools, we all knew each other fairly well. And he proceeded in our first few minutes of conversation, he just had to get it off his chest, <laughs> that uh, in the, the, the previous 10 years since we had graduated, he'd just given up on all that Christianity stuff. Just done with it, done with all that morality talk, he said. And then he turned to me, he goes, so what do you do now? Yeah, and it made him a little awkward. He kind of backpedaled, was blushed, you know, kind of, oh, oh, great, yeah, good for you, slap on the back, see you later, you know, one of those. Being around Christians should make others, on some level, have a sense of uneasiness. Now, I wasn't persecuted at all in that moment, not even one bit. But a similar sense of a feeling to need to, to examine their life and sinful choices should happen and that does happen a lot of times when people are around Christians. And they may revile you for it, insult you, verse 11 says. Speak falsely about you, it says. Well, it's happened in a lot of workplaces, I know. It's happened in a lot of families. Speak falsely, revile you. Maybe it's you at work when you don't want to view the porn that all the other guys are looking at. Or gossip or badmouth somebody or when they're just trashing the boss in the workroom. Maybe what's when you're the only one who claims all her tips. That's happened to a lot of servers that are Christians. 
Maybe it happens when you're the one guy who goes by all the regulations and red tapes, even if it costs you time because you know it's the right thing to do. How about you when you're the one person at the family dinner table this Thanksgiving who gets yelled at because you can't affirm or celebrate someone's life choices? It's possible. It can happen. I mean, even if they don't explicitly condemn you, you might hear them say, hey, stop judging me. Just stop judging me with your looks, with your words, with your life, with your presence even. Just stop. That's the persecution from relativism in the world. When they see our love of holiness and goodness, and even our efforts to live it out, and even our call to say, hey, your good efforts aren't enough. How about the moralist? Persecution from the moralist. Now, the moralist is someone who is that nice person, but not that new person. The very religious person is the moralist. And this is why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. This is the, the, the moralist persecution. That was the Pharisees' issue. When the moralist hears the gospel from you, you, nice person, who you maybe are as a Christian, and they hear that their goodness is, or that your goodness is not your own, but you've received it from Christ, and that all their efforts will add up to nothing before a holy God, that our acceptance with God is based solely on Christ's performance and not on our own, that all your goodness is just a vain attempt to control and manipulate God and get something out of him in, the, in performance, and that you need a savior to make you right with God, that enrages the moralist. Enrages them. Whether they let it slip out or not. Remember, we're good at putting on filters as adults. That enrages the moralist, or at least it bugs them. At least you might see it bug them. I used to work at the front desk of a, telling lots of stories. I've had some examples of this, I guess. That's why I'm telling lots of stories in my own life this morning. But I used to work at a, uh, the front desk of a pharmaceutical company when I was in college. It's a great job. I got to read, basically, and answer a phone. As, like, as a college student, as an English major, I was like, that's the job for me. I can read and answer a phone. So I just sat there and read. Uh, and, but I, 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 I really, as I went to that job, uh, it had been a time in my life and I kind of had this sort of rebirth of my own Christian faith. And I really went into that job thinking, how can I just love these people, even though I'm not doing much for this company, just sitting at this desk? And so I tried to engage all the workers a lot. And actually, I think we got in trouble for too much talking at the front desk. But um, I would try to engage them. And I really wanted to show them Christ's love. I just wanted to be a loving guy in that office. And there was this one lady who would always come up to me. Multiple times in my, I think, three years I worked there. And she'd come up to me and she'd just say, you're just so nice, Jeff. You're just so nice. You're just such a good boy, she said. That was 20 years ago, so I was a little younger. And one time I just thought I would kind of just fire back at her and say, you know what? I'm really not that good. And you know what? None of us are really that good, are we? And I said that to her. She couldn't handle it. No, no, no. You, you, you are. She said, you're really, you're really good. You're nice. You know, stop saying that. She, you know, she was like, she couldn't handle it. In her mind, if she thought I was nice and good, and then I wasn't, if that was the truth, what would that mean for her? What would that mean for her moralism, her life, her reputation, her resume that she'd built up of her, her good goodness? If it is the true gospel 
that's repugnant to both the relativist and the moralist. That there's a holy God and we are not him. And the only righteousness you truly need, you can't produce. We learn that from the Beatitudes. You can't produce it. Only Jesus can. And you can only receive it by grace through faith, not earning. That is not a popular message. R.W. Glenn, in the commentary I was reading, said this, The relativist finds Christians annoyingly happy to obey God. And religious people find Christians annoyingly self-deprecating about their own moral accomplishments. Both and are annoyed by Christians. So then what can give us the courage as we close today to be annoyingly happy to obey God and or annoyingly self-deprecating about our righteousness? It's looking at the first commandment in the Beatitudes. Let's finish with point three. We'll just take a couple minutes on this. We are commanded to rejoice because persecution is proof of our citizenship and the reward, the reward to come. We're to rejoice. Not because our righteousness is blessed, but because persecution proves two things to us. That's why we rejoice. And here, here's what they are. Well, the first one's as Peter said, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What, what's Peter saying there? It's what, what Jesus is saying in this beatitude. If you are persecuted for true now, the true reason, it's a sign that you're a kingdom citizen. You're a kingdom citizen now. Not someday, now. Remember, now, not persecution for your politics or your attitude, but for Christ's sake. That type of persecution tells you you are a kingdom citizen. And we're not joyful just for the persecution in itself, kind of masochistic kind of view, but for what it proves about us. For yours, Jesus said in the, in the Beatitude, is the kingdom of heaven and all that it contains. It's your stamp of credibility that you've been truly stamped with the Spirit. It's your passport, let's put it in other terms for us, that's already been stamped with destination, kingdom of God. Because you're living now for the kingdom that's broken in, but not fully arrived yet, right? You prove that when it comes, you're one of the citizens, one of the ones for who's it been prepared. Here's the second reason. There was two. The second reason to persevere in persecution, to rejoice, is in verse 12. The great reward. The great reward. It's an incentive. But it's an incentive that makes Christians uncomfortable when they hear about reward. Like, ooh, wait a minute. Reward? I'm going to be good for reward? Uh, is that against the gospel? Wait, if I'm only paying to get something, isn't that selfish? Or am I working for my salvation if Jesus says, live this way for the reward? Not at all. Just like your salvation was all of grace, the rewards of heaven, they're not earned like payment, like you deserve them. But they're given to us out of love like a generous father who gives his child an allowance for mowing the lawn. He had to do the chore whether he was going to get paid for it or not. But the gracious, loving father gives him a reward just to celebrate the hard work. That's what we're talking about when Jesus says the reward of, of heaven. The reward is a grace too. And the reward is really God himself. So if he gives us more of himself and more of joy in him, how can that be a bad thing? So your persecution makes certain your citizenship and the reward of heaven, which in turn then in a circle, circles around and makes you more willing to receive persecution. It works in a big circular fashion. 
That's why we have to be heavenly minded to live the life on earth. As we come to our table today, the Lord's Supper, which we don't have a table, but you got it in your hand. As we come to that today, we're reminded that Jesus endured the greatest persecution when Hebrews says, why? For the joy set before him. The reward of joy, of pleasing the Father and saving his bride. So when Jesus came to the cross, in the table we look at today, reward was on his mind too. The joy set before him. And so he lived that way and followed that way. At what cost? His life. And so we rejoice that if he anticipated the joy of heaven as a motivating factor for him, as a son of God, to receive the crushing blow of judgment we deserve, then we too, you and I, in the here and now, right now, can rejoice and be glad when we face persecution because we know we're walking the way of the cross. The joy set before him. And we know too that his victory is our victory. Which means this, even if you face the greatest persecution ever, which is death, it's actually the greatest blessing for the Christian because resurrection has happened and resurrection is coming and that's what the table shows us. The victory has been won. So I want us to take a moment or two as David gets ready to lead a song before we take the elements. I want you to take a moment or two just to think through persecution. Think through your life. Think where Jesus might be calling you to pursue righteousness, gospel living, that might just bring into conflict that might be what Jesus calls blessed. Laverne's got some extra um, communion, I think, right there. So you don't have it, put your hand up. The rest of us take a moment just to contemplate, to pray, and then I will lead us in a moment. David. David.